0: Hey there, how's it going? Welcome to The Pocket Contemplative. I'm Dave Smelser. This week we'll talk about the strange truth for most people that what keeps us from boldly walking into opportunities is not because of actual hardships we might experience, but it's instead our fear of whatever bad feelings we might feel and the uncertainties we'll have to take on to move forward. The barrier to fully inhabiting our lives doesn't turn out to be hard circumstances, but our fear of feeling bad— So this week, we'll look at some wisdom from the New Testament about this. I was struck by this as we recently celebrated Easter, but also from contemporaries like Oprah author Martha Beck, whom we touched on in the last episode as well. We'll look at the very practical, but not entirely obvious tool to get past this that has at the very least done me a lot of good, and I'll pass on a popular acronym for how to pull this off. This is as practically helpful to me, at least, as just about anything else, as I look to fully experience everything I'm hoping God has for me. Before we get started, let me encourage you to check out our parent website at journey-on.net, journey-on.net, where you can discover interesting materials like 5-minute videos to teach you the basics that we talk about here, along with offering you a look at live online small groups that people from all over are enjoying as they connect with new friends who also want to grow in the spirituality that we talk about here. Again, that's all at journey-on.net. All right, let's get rolling with Don't Fear Your Fear. In the transparent spirit we have here at The Pocket Contemplative, I have all sorts of embarrassing parts of my character, one of which is that I sometimes dread making phone calls for reasons that are obscure to me. I really don't know why, and I never have. I'm aware of whatever the need for the phone call in question is. I understand that the person at the other end of the call has no problem receiving my phone call, and yet I have to buck myself up to do it. I remember being a teen and needing a haircut and having my parents tell me, fine, they'll pay for it, but I need to call to schedule it. And that was a deal breaker. So in my strange psychology, I'm not dodging any hard thing about a given call itself. It doesn't seem hard. I'm dodging having to feel however making a given call will make me feel. My wife, Grace, who has no problem making phone calls, um, and so she's become my cheerful enabler in this. Rather than telling me to grow up and solve this, she'll just hear I'm having a hard time bucking myself up to make a call, and she'll say, no problem, I'll make the call. And she does, sometimes then just handing the phone to me after she makes the introduction. Now, I want to make clear that I bring some good things to the table, that I do easier than she does, and I want to formally state that I'm not a slacker. But things like this are an ongoing reminder that on occasion I can be afraid of things, not because in my right mind I regard them as scary, but because I'm scared of how I'll feel in the face of them. It's crazy, but it's true. So perhaps this is a trivial example of something I find myself thinking about in the aftermath of Easter which is what happened to the disciples after Jesus' resurrection, how they became so fearless in the stories and acts of the apostles, how they, like, gave up the hope of a life of comfort for such uncertainty, and how appealing such a thing has always, in principle, seemed to me. My mind drifts to scenes like the one I remember from this old miniseries, Jesus of Nazareth, where the disciples are talking over a campfire, and Peter says something like, how are we going to think about all this crazy stuff that's happened to us when we go back to our families? And Matthew looks at him and says something like, you idiot, we're never going back. As if Christian discipleship is about boldly embracing flow and change in a world that's uncertain by nature. Later in the New Testament, faith gets defined very much along these lines. So Hebrews chapter 11 says about heroic people of faith that are being held up as models for us. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. Always a very curious thing to say about people who are the heroes of faith, they did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So faith gets defined here as hanging in, in the middle of, of unending uncertainty. And it, this appears to be a commentary on the Old Testament story of the Israelites in the Exodus, who, in the certainty the uncertainty of crossing a desert, desperately wanted to go back to the stable, if rotten, life they had in Egypt. And what we're told is these new heroes of faith take the exact same journey. They're in some stable circumstance that, nonetheless, God calls them to leave. Maybe a bad circumstance, we, don't, we aren't really told but they're called to leave it. And there's this wonderful promise in front of them, just like there was for the Israelites in the Exodus. But in between is just unrelenting uncertainty. But rather than wanting to go back, the good people, the faithful people, somehow figure out ways to just hang in all that uncertainty productively with God. And I think it ties into this fearing fear or this uncertainty or whatever the stuff was that, um, that I'm feeling so strongly with the um, post-resurrection disciples after Easter. This brings me back to when I first discovered faith amongst a very sincere gung-ho group of Christians. They were very motivated by that post-Pentecost group of disciples, and they, too, assumed that life would be following God's leading into risk and adventure, super motivating to me, despite, you would think, my fear of making phone calls, which arguably should have warned me I wasn't cut out for something like that. Anyway, they loved a quote from an obscure movie at the time, a movie I've still never seen, an indie of the era called Repo Man. Maybe you've seen it. I have not. But the quote was this. It's about people who repossess cars for a living, and it's a life of adventure and craziness. And a veteran Repo Man says to a a novice, see an ordinary person spends his life avoiding tense situations. Repo Man spends his life getting into tense situations, and that was held up as a model of faith. So I'm not sure how many of my friends in that era still see their lives in that model. Maybe it's like of the era. Maybe it was like part of being a young person and all idealistic. And of course, I'm not sure if I myself do either. So it's not a comment about anything. But that said, as I've aged, I haven't fully lost that youthful vision of boldly moving into the adventures God calls me into. But to whatever small degree that that has remained true of me, I've had to learn an ever-evolving skill set to stick with it, one that starts with addressing my fear of feeling bad. So in an earlier episode, I talked about how when I'm in stressful situations, I can hate things like going to kids' concerts or even to movies because then I can't distract myself. It's not appropriate to take out my phone and just forget my troubles. And just sitting there, I can discover that all my anxieties of the uncertainties of my life will flood in on me, and I just got to sit there and feel them. But I've noticed a different dynamic recently that's at least nudged me the direction of the apostles and the mystics. So at a movie where perhaps I feel flooded by my worst fears, I notice surprising options. I can just over and over again ask, where am I feeling whatever this thing is in my body? And then I can note the physical sensation without identifying it with an emotion. And sure enough, while sometimes I'll need to stick with this for a bit, it does diffuse both the narrative my stresses are trying to get me to buy into, but also the power of those fears and emotions. So again, classic contemplative wisdom following Hebrews chapter 11 is that our circumstances are impermanent That good times come and go and suffering comes and goes. But as we've talked about several times, we're tempted to do what contemplatives call cling to pleasant things in our past that we don't want to let go of or to grasp for better things. I suppose for the Israelites in the Exodus, they were clinging to the good parts of the stability they felt in Egypt, granted forgetting the rotten parts. Um, and the to say, evil, you can't cling to something in your past, nor can you grasp or the promised land, if I could just get to the promised land, life would be good. That life is always about letting go of what we're tempted to cling to and not grasping for what's in front of us, but sitting with what is right now, however uncertain. And of course, no matter what we do, sooner or later, we're going to get sick or loved ones will get sick or bad things will happen. So clinging and grasping don't prevent hard times. They don't prevent actual suffering. And as we talked about uh, in the last episode, it's deep within us that when those bad things happen, we're going to wonder how we could have prevented the bad thing rather than just living in the moment we're in. I'm told that from a psychological perspective, when things go wrong and we feel all the uncertainties of our life, we're tempted to play out a drama that has three roles. And the three roles are victim, persecutor, and rescuer. Victim, persecutor, and rescuer. This is from Martha Beck, who we looked at in the last episode. She says, life becomes a play in these stressful times, with only three possible roles, victim, persecutor, and rescuer. We all know how confusing and scary it is to be little, and we all know fully grown adults who consistently feel that way no matter how big they get. For example, when boxer Mike Tyson famously bit off Evander Holyfield's ear during a match, he protested, what am I supposed to do? I've got children to raise. He kept butting me. In other words, I'm a victim of the situation. He made me do it. People stuck in the victim role always have targets of blame, people they see as persecutors. They often turn to others for help and support. These are their rescuers who get to play the final role in the drama triangle. Some people get stuck in just one of these roles for life. Perpetual victims never stop complaining about the terrible things persecutors do to them. But they don't take any action that might improve their situation. They rely on others to play the rescuer role. Many kind, empathetic folks play that rescuer role all their lives, galloping to the aid of one victim after another. No one self-identifies as a persecutor. A violent or raging person will always claim they're being threatened or victimized. But to everyone else, they can see they're playing the persecutor role to the hilt. And then she tells a story that I'll, I'll... Give you a trigger warning if this is triggering to you. Martha Beck is a coach, like a life coach for people. She's a famous life coach. Again, Oprah knows her, and she gets lots of exposure. So famous, powerful people come to her, but also lots of women, many of them who who are going through some sort of abuse situation. She's going to tell one of those stories now. I think it's a big part of her practice. So if that's triggering, skip ahead a minute or so, and there you go. But anyway, in this victim persecutor rescuer thing, she says, take Verna, who seemed from the outside to have a perfect life, but who was actually being beaten by her husband, Tom. They went through the same triangular dance over and over. First, they would start to argue. Tom would become so angry that Verna would become frightened and try to leave the house. Immediately, Tom would go into victim mode. Feeling the massive anxiety and rage of a child about to be abandoned, he would physically attack Verna, all the time thinking of himself as her victim. Once Verna was too frightened and hurt to leave, Tom would break down in sobbing apologies, saying how he hated himself for harming her and begging her to forgive him. He'd become her rescuer when she needed one most, because she'd just been beaten by a man she loved. She would respond to Tom's emotional distress by moving into the rescuer role herself, soothing Tom emotionally until they both felt calm and bonded. So there's a particularly toxic example, the victim-persecutor-rescuer triangle. So this grid has become something I can't unsee now that I've read it. I see it in myself when I suddenly feel insecure and stressed out about something. Is there someone who could bail me out if things really crash? Is there a rescuer? Uh, Grace and I were in a restaurant recently, and the owner would go around to each table talking about how unique her recipes were, and did we like them, and would we be back? So I find myself thinking, she's playing the victim, she's looking to us to be the rescuer. Of course, if I'm understanding this, this is not saying there are not actual victims, either individually or in groups in the world. Of course there are. But in the spirit of Repo Man and the apostles, I wonder if it's saying that we aren't helped by unconsciously living in that role ourselves. It doesn't serve us. So all to say, with all this in mind, what are, what can we do about this fear of feeling bad and the way we get trapped in roles when we do become afraid of our suffering or feeling bad? Well, perhaps we could do a few things, like we could focus on being present rather than on being happy. Grasping for happiness doesn't tend to get us there, which is counterintuitive. Sometimes when I'm feeling so anxious or stressed or afraid of my emotions, I can you know, pray and say, God, I don't want to feel so bad. Help me feel happy. But that very grasping for happiness is the thing that sticks us in the drama. And we become a victim again of our own feelings and the circumstances that would make them happen. Why do I have to feel so bad? Why does this happen to me? How come I'm always stuck in this space? Why doesn't God answer these prayers for me? You know, There's always something out there that is victimizing me into feeling bad. But if we focus on being present rather than being happy, we discover some powerful things. We get out of that drama, which leads me to my second suggestion. Be aware of where you are feeling your emotions in your body. So focus on being present rather than being happy. Be aware of where you're feeling your emotions in your body. That's what I did in the movie theater that I was talking about. I'm stuck. I feel I can't go anywhere. So rather than just enjoying my delightful movie, I'm having all these anxieties in my life flooding in on me. And I take a few moments, which doesn't seem to pull me out of the movie unduly, to kind of pick them off one by one. Oh, I see you, you know, fear or whatever I would name my emotion. And then I ask myself, gee, I wonder where I'm feeling that in my body. And I think, oh, I guess I'm feeling a little bit of pressure on the top of my head, on both sides of my head. I feel a little pressure there. Then I just notice the pressure, like, oh, I see you, a little bit of pressure on the top of my head. I sit with it. I don't try to dodge it. And I discover it passes. A popular acronym to help people do this is RAIN, R-A-I-N. RAIN stands for recognize, accept, investigate, and then non-attach, which I suppose it might work better as nouns, recognition, acceptance, investigation, and non-attachment. But let's use them as a verb. Recognize, accept, investigate, non-attach. Recognize. So I'm in my movie theater. I'm suddenly feeling all these fears. I recognize them. I don't just push them away and I just want to watch the movie. Whatever I'm feeling, I just want to watch the movie. I'm not pushing it away. I recognize. Oh, I guess I'm feeling flooded by emotions. Uh, Let's take one at a time. Pick one. All right, we'll call it, you know, anxiety about some obscure thing. So I recognize anxiety about some obscure thing. A, accept. I'm not trying to push it away. I've accepted that I'm feeling anxiety about some obscure thing. Got it. Tracking. Not trying to push it away. Just sitting with it. So again, that's where it's focused on being present, really being happy. I don't need to push it away and just be happy. Recognize, accept, it's there one way or another. I guess I have this emotion with me. Investigate. This is where it's like, notice where you're feeling it in your body. So I recognize anxiety about some obscure thing. I accept it. I'm not trying to push it away like tracking. I see you anxiety about some obscure thing. Investigate, where am I feeling in my body? Well, maybe I'm feeling it in two little lines of pressure on the top of each side of my head. All right, and then non-attach, which is I don't create, which we'll talk about in the next point, a story around it. It's just two little lines of pressure in the top of my head. I can live with that. And so I just notice it, oh, I got it, and let it go. I don't suddenly you know, jump on those anxieties as if they're something real, which brings me to my third suggestion. Notice your suffering without building a story around it. Notice your suffering, but don't build a story. So whatever our anxiety or our regret or whatever... Might be the feeling we're afraid of feeling. But whatever it is, it's just a feeling to notice like any other feeling. Something we can notice and say, oh, that's interesting. I see you, anxiety about some obscure thing. Got it. Interesting. Maybe uh, to having, uh, in the terms of the consolations and desolations, which we talked about recently, it's just a desolation we notice rather than kind of affect uh, to and ride and work that narrative. Maybe we realize a few things then, that the feeling doesn't have to become the narrative of our life. It doesn't have to mean anything. It doesn't have to have a story behind it. It's just a feeling that passes like any other feeling. So back to a moment to the Easter story that's been on my mind. In Matthew, we're told this is what Jesus did to cosmically powerful effect. So his suffering at the crucifixion is met with the tearing of the curtain of the temple, which perhaps you have read or know about from knowing the story of Easter. So here's the story. There's this inner part of the temple where the Jews come to worship God, and the inner part is the holy of holies, the place where God most thickly lives. And it's so holy that you just couldn't just wander in, or you'd be zapped like a bug because there's just too much of God's glory. And so it's so holy that only the holiest person, the high priest, can go in, and even then, only once a year into that time. But now Jesus, on the cross, dies, and the curtain is ripped, and all that holiness and glory of God floods out for everybody. It's a gift we all get to have now. And it turns out that Jesus's suffering, entered into as just suffering, does this work. It opens up God's rich work for us. If Jesus's suffering had taken on a narrative like, oh, God the Father doesn't love Jesus or won't help Jesus or doesn't exist, then no one gets the good stuff. And that was a threat, Right. There was people shouting at him up on the cross, taunting him, saying, if you're so powerful, if you've got this great relationship with God, come down from the cross, but obviously that's not true. They're suggesting, take on a story for your suffering, but Jesus refuses. And we see Jesus anticipating his great suffering and fearing it in the Garden of Gethsemane. But the big story there is that he decides against taking on the story. With Jesus not fearing his suffering, but enduring it as part of the story, but without a big interpretive narrative built around it, then God's right there, and we all get offered these good gifts. Notice your suffering, but don't build a story around it. It's just, you know, I don't know, pressure on the top of your head. It's just whatever's happening, but it's, you know, it'll pass. And finally, consider the empowerment dynamic. So as a response to the victim-persecutor-rescuer dynamic, Martha Beck tells us this. She says an author named David Emerald developed a kind of anti-triangle, which he called the empowerment dynamic. In this pattern, people who are once seen as persecutors become challengers. They force others to rise to new levels of strength and competency. Rescuers become coaches. Instead of jumping in to soothe and fix, poor you, let me do that for you, they say, wow, it's an awful situation. What are you going to do about it? And in the most empowering shift of all, Emerald suggests that victims become creators where victims believe the situation is unbearable and I'm helpless. Creators can ask themselves, the situation's messed up. What can I make from it? So I kind of love this empowerment dynamic, and I'll revisit it in a minute. But, right, what it's saying is that when we feel all the, the we're buried by our, our concerns, our fears, threats coming to us, just our internal world, along with actual threats, of course. But when our internal world barriers, uh, floods against us, we can enter the, the victim triangle where there's a victim, a persecutor, and a rescuer. Why do I have to feel this? Why is it always me? Why can't my life be better? What's happening? And I'm the victim. The persecutor, hard to say. It could be the people who are threats to us. It could be God for not solving it. Maybe God's the persecutor. And then there's a rescuer. We want it to be God. God, why don't you bail me out? Why do I have to keep experiencing this? What's going on? But it's a it's a reinforcing negative cycle, right? And so this empowerment dynamic is meant to transform it into a generative positive cycles where persecutors, which could be God, you know, why don't you bail me out of this, become challengers. It's like, well, I've had these, these challenges in my life, but now I'm, I'm challenged to rise into them, to meet the challenge, to walk boldly into whatever future I face and not just feel buried by it and feel like a victim. And rescuers become coaches, like, who will bail me out of this? You know, God, why don't you do it? That the rescuer becomes, gee, God says, Wow, I wonder how you're going to help yourself with that. That does sound hard. What's your plan? And then victims become creators, where it's like my role is not just to cower and think, why has this always happened to me? My role is to say, I wonder what God's suggesting I do. How do I step into the situation, not be afraid of the bad feelings that I feel as I do, but just walk in and see what happens. Be that repo man who's not running from 10 situations, but running into them, trusting that God is there. All right, focus on being present rather than on being happy. Be aware of where you're feeling your emotions in your body, perhaps utilizing this RAIN technique, recognize, accept, investigate, not attach. Then notice your suffering without building a story around it and consider the empowerment dynamic where persecutors become challengers, rescuers become coaches, and victims become creators. So you'll be encouraged to know that just this last week I had a call I was dreading And I took a moment, got present to my feelings, noticed where I was feeling them in my body, stayed with them for a moment, and then I made the call. I will master this yet, I promise you. But in the bigger picture, I seem to remain really inspired by the post-resurrection fearlessness of the disciples, where they just go wherever they need to go and see what will happen when they do, how they don't seem to be afraid of how they're going to feel as they move out, but just intrepidly get on with it. It seems like a very specific kind of freedom, and it's one I'm hoping will only become stronger for me as years pass. Thanks for joining me for this episode of The Pocket Contemplative. We'll talk again soon.